Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A U.S. drone is down after colliding with a Russian jet. The lead starts right now. Russian fighter jets intercept an unmanned U.S. drone, forcing it down over the Black Sea. How will the U.S. respond? Plus, 2024 is clearly on. Donald Trump makes his first election stop in Iowa this cycle. and He takes aim at his top GOP competitor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's not even officially in the race yet. But first, protecting your money. Multiple investigations reportedly launched into the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, or CVB, as panicky tweets are partly to blame for the bank losing more than $40 billion in a single day. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Any moment, President Biden is expected to speak in Monterey Park, California about efforts to reduce gun violence. He will also meet with families and victims from one of this year's many, many mass shootings. We will bring you the president's remarks as soon as they begin. Until then, we're going to turn to our money lead. Markets closed moments ago, up 334 points as bank stocks rebounded in a stunning economic turnabout from this time yesterday. The biggest winners today, more specifically regional banks, some of which are up double digits after massive losses yesterday. Experts were fearing more bank failures after two went down within just three days of each other over the weekend. Today, CNN learned that the U.S. Department of Justice is investigating the collapse of CVB, Silicon Valley Bank, which was the biggest failure of any American bank since 2008. The Securities and Exchange Commission, we're told, is also investigating, according to the Wall Street Journal. Also boosting some economic confidence today, new data that shows inflation has fallen for the eighth straight month. I want to bring in CNN's Matt Egan. And Matt, this has been a a roller coaster few days for the U.S. economy. What does this uh, rebound for regional banks mean? Well, Jake, this is one sign that confidence may be starting to return, that perhaps cooler heads are prevailing. Uh, You know, this collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, this was driven by psychology and emotion, you know, panic specifically. And then we saw regional bank stocks collapse yesterday, despite the fact that the federal government launched this massive rescue of uninsured depositors over the weekend. So it is certainly encouraging to see a reversal today. As you can see on your screen, regional banks closing sharply higher, although I would note that some of these gains kind of lost steam as the day went on. More important than the stock prices is what's actually happening with deposits. Now, we don't, unfortunately, we don't have that much transparency into deposit flows, but a senior Treasury official told CNN's Phil Manningly that deposit outflows from small and mid-sized banks, those have eased. And that, of course, is exactly what U.S. officials want to see. They want to stop the panic before it spreads elsewhere, and they want to restore confidence. Of course, Jake, that's not going to happen overnight. Confidence is a fragile thing, and it was clearly shaken by the last few days. So, Matt, we know that the Justice Department is investigating the collapse of SVB. 
uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, the SEC is also investigating. What might these investigations look like? What might the outcomes be? Well, Jake, I think there's two big questions here. I mean, was this just bad management or was there actual wrongdoing done here? Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that there's two points of focus here from these investigations. One, the actual collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Two, stock sales done by executives at this bank in the days before the collapse. Now, we should caution that these investigations are in the preliminary stage, and we don't know yet whether any civil or criminal charges, whether any findings of wrongdoing will come out of this. But, Jay, clearly the government is very interested in finding out what happened and making sure it doesn't happen again. All right, Matt Egan, thank you so much. There is a new warning sign In all of today's economic data, credit ratings firm Moody's has officially downgraded its outlook for the banking industry, and it is keeping an eye on six specific banks. I want to bring in Justin Wolfers. He's a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan. Um, Justin, thanks for joining us. Moody's downgrading the outlook uh, for the banking industry. What does that mean in practice? What does this mean for people watching right now? I think one answer is not very much. So, when we see bank stock prices fall or their credit ratings start to get cut, it could be that there's a liquidity problem there. That's the sort of bank run problem. But I think what's really happening is at the end of all this, there's going to have to be another close regulatory look at what these medium, small and medium-sized banks are doing. Silicon Valley Bank took some big bets. It put people's money at risk. It wasn't okay. That's going to have big implications for how we regulate the industry and for the future profitability of some of those banks. Do you think other banks uh, are still at risk of failing? No. First of all, Silicon Valley Bank was special. Uh, Most of your viewers, those who have less than $250,000 in the bank, don't need to worry about any of this at all because your funds are insured by the government. They say, if there's no money in the vault, we'll send you the money anyway. The problem with Silicon Valley Bank, its customers, mostly venture capitalists and startups, had gobs of money in the bank, way more than $250,000. The money was effectively uninsured. That's what meant that customers were willing to run away at the first sign of trouble. Other banks aren't in the same situation, and that's why we're not seeing broader contagion. The chair of the House Financial Services Committee, Congressman Patrick McHenry, said the collapse of Silicon Valley was driven by, quote, the first Twitter-fueled bank run. Explain what that means. Well, let's just go back and think about what a bank run is. A bank run is when all your customers try and, if too many customers turn up and want to take all more money out of the vault than you've got in the vault. If you're a bank with only one customer, then if that customer turns up, you're necessarily going to get a bank run. Fortunately, most banks have millions of customers. That's not a problem. Silicon Valley Bank, though, first of all, it had a large number of customers, but they were all in the same industry. They were startups. They were all answering to the same VC firms. So it was like only having a small number of customers. They're all very closely tied and they're all tweeting at each other. Get your money out. They're texting each other. Get your money out. And so normally a bank run happens over a period of hours as you literally have to get to a branch, try and get cash out and discover there's there's nothing left in the vault. In today's supercharged digital world, it can happen a lot faster. New data shows that inflation fell for an eighth straight month. It's still at 6%. The Federal Reserve wants that number to be 2%. How much longer do you think we'll be paying higher prices because of higher uh, interest rates 
in order for the Fed to achieve their goal of, of much lower inflation. There was both good and bad news in the inflation report. Um, inflation's come down from the really dramatic levels of seven, eight, nine percent. It's currently six percent, and if you look over the past few months, it may be even closer to four point something or five point something. But that's still a long way above where the Fed wants it to be, and it's not clear that inflation's trending down anymore. So the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates until it starts to see inflation come down. And it's probably going to continue on that path, maybe a little slower because of Silicon Valley Bank, but pretty much on the same sort of interest rate raising path that we saw before. All right, Justin Wolfers, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss former Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Toomey was the top Republican on the Senate Banking Committee until he retired from the Senate a few months ago. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. Um, In 2018, you were one of the leaders behind the 2018 bill to roll back parts of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act. Uh, which eased restrictions on some banks. Uh, we've heard President, yeah. President Biden and others saying that this rollback could have contributed to the banking failure. Take a listen to Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders, on the floor of the Senate in 2018, warning uh, that a bank pretty much this size, a Silicon Valley bank, uh, would, failing would be likelier with this deregulation. Let's roll that, roll that clip. Just yesterday... The Congressional Budget Office told us that the legislation we are debating today will, and I quote, increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between $100 billion and $250 billion would fail, end of quote. That's the CBO. In other words, this legislation makes it more likely that we will see another financial crisis So uh, here's the CBO report Senator Sanders is quoting. The part about this is not a huge part of it, but the basic argument is that the stress tests that had been required that are no longer required could have caught uh, Silicon Valley Bank's interest rate risks, the the problems that they were having investing in in treasury bonds too much. Is that not possible? Uh, Extremely unlikely, and and here's why, Jake. There's actually two arguments that people who uh, objected to this very modest rollback of regulation uh, cite. Um, With respect to the stress test, what they don't point out is while we relieved the obligation to do one category of stress tests to a biannual rather than an annual frequency, they're still obligated to do ongoing stress tests for other purposes. And here's the more important thing fundamentally, I don't think anyone designs a stress test to test the result of losing 40% of your deposits in 24 hours. That's what happened. So I think that's completely specious. They also will sometimes cite the relief from the liquidity coverage ratio. The fact is, despite the fact that SVB was no longer mandated to meet that, it almost certainly exceeded that requirement also. So this had nothing to do with 2155, uh, nothing at all. Well, I, I take your point on the I, I on, on the run on the bank, but but wouldn't the stre- the stress test wouldn't have discerned somebody wouldn't have been able to say, hey, I mean, it doesn't sound like the bank was managed very well. Hey, you have too much invested in in treasury bonds, and when inflation goes up, that's and inter- interest rates uh, go up like that. That's going to be a real problem. 
I mean, the the duration mismatch they had would have been obvious uh, at many levels without requiring the stress test. The point is, the stress test is usually designed to measure what happens under various stresses. And I'm saying that there's no stress test that's designed to measure the results of something anywhere near as severe and radical and immediate as what SVB underwent. What I think, Jay, uh, Jake, I'm sorry, that we, we've got to focus on here is it's very hard to overstate the role of the Federal Reserve in this. Just think about it this way. Wildly unprecedented easy money sloshing around on a massive scale combined with all the spending that was going on absolutely was a big source of the surge in deposits. That's the first point. Maintaining zero interest rates and in fact negative real interest rates pressured all the banks to move out the risk curve. Now, in the case of SVB, it wasn't a credit risk curve, but it was a maturity risk curve. And then finally, when the Fed eventually realized how badly they'd gotten this wrong and they very quickly raised rates, they drove underwater the very bond portfolios that they themselves had created at the bank. So, you know, coming and going, this has the Fed's fingerprints all over it. Do you think that the people who might have encouraged the run on the bank, uh, venture capitalists, individuals on, on Twitter or other forms of social media, bear any responsibility for this? Uh, you know, it's hard to fault people from observing what they think is a problem and, and notifying people of that, right? They may be right. They may be wrong. I don't know what their motives were. But, uh, you know, uh, free speech is a pretty important bedrock of, uh, of our country. Senator Pat Toomey, thank you so much, sir. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Jake. Any moment, President Biden is expected to speak about efforts to reduce gun violence, and we will bring that to you live. Also ahead, a Russian fighter jet colliding with an American drone, forcing the U.S. to take down its own drone. We'll go live to the Pentagon and the White House for reaction. Plus, Donald Trump revealing one regret. That explains his tone in a speech last night in Iowa that went pretty hard on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Stay with us. And we're topping our world lead now. Moments ago, the Russian ambassador to the United States arrived at the U.S. State Department here in Washington, D.C. He had been summoned there by top U.S. officials this afternoon. This after a Russian warplane collided with a U.S. drone over the Black Sea earlier today, forcing the U.S. to bring down its unmanned aircraft. The U.S. Air Force says the Russian attack was, quote, reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional and warned that the clash could lead to, quote, unintended escalation. A U.S. official tells CNN that a Russian jet intentionally flew in front of the U.N., um, in front of the unmanned U.S. Reaper drone, such as the one seen here. Uh, And then the Russians dumped jet fuel in front of it and then damaged a propeller on the drone, which forced the U.S. Air Force to then bring the drone down. We're covering this uh, from the Pentagon, from the White House, and in Ukraine uh, let's start with CNN's Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. And Orrin, U.S. aircraft flying over the Black Sea's international waters, not uncommon. Uh, is it clear whether or not the Russians did this intentionally? Jake, the Pentagon and the U.S. military have been very careful not to ascribe an intent or a goal to the Russian pilots inside those two Russian aircraft. But it's also very clear that if you look at the description of how this played out, it certainly looks at least in part deliberate. The Pentagon says over the course of about 30 to 40 minutes, two of these Russian Su-27 fighter jets repeatedly flew in front of, sprayed fuel in front of, and then ultimately one of them collided with this MQ-9 Reaper drone, damaging the propeller and forcing the U.S. to bring down the drone 
over international waters. It should be noted that all of this played out over international waters, according to the U.S. Russia firing back just a short time ago, saying they did not use airborne weapons or come into contact with the MQ-9 Reaper drone. The Pentagon has said, however, that there is video that they're working to put out, imagery that they're working to put out, which will certainly paint a clearer picture of how this played out. But Jake, repeatedly crossing in front of a U.S. drone over the course of 30 to 40 minutes, whether you meant to hit it or not, that sort of interaction comes across as very intentional. The U.S. calling this unsafe, unprofessional, even going so far as to call it reckless. And let's bring in uh, Ivan Watson, who's in eastern Ukraine for us. Uh, Ivan, uh, anything more you can tell us about what the Kremlin is saying about this incident? Sure. I mean, the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense it, uh, issued its statement within the last hour, basically, confirming that, yes, in fact, something had happened there that resulted in the loss of this U.S. Air Force Reaper. Uh, they are arguing that the drone was approaching Crimea uh, and that it was operating, it was flying without its transponders on, and that prompted the uh, Russians to scramble the Su-27 uh, uh, jets to uh, intercept it. Uh, and uh, they, again, as you just heard from Oren, said they did not come in contact, they say, with the drone, the Russian jets, and they also did not use their weapons. So we have kind of two narratives here uh, for what may have taken place out there. This will certainly uh, ramp up tensions uh, in an area that is already uh, beyond tense. Uh, I'm standing 20, 30 miles away from front lines where uh, Ukrainian and Russian troops are killing each other uh, day in and day out. And much of the rhetoric, the propaganda coming out of Moscow right now out of the state media is arguing to the Russian audiences that, hey, Russian troops are already fighting NATO and the U.S. on the ground, even though neither organization have sent uh, troops to engage directly in this terrible war. Yeah, and, and Phil, at the White House, uh, officials briefed President Biden about this incident this morning. Uh, is there any expectation that President Biden might reach out to Russian President Putin to talk about this, to try to de-escalate tensions? Yeah, Jake, the president was briefed by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan this morning about the events that transpired over the Black Sea. But there's been no indication from White House officials or U.S. officials writ large that the president is considering reaching out directly to President Putin. Now, these two leaders have not spoken since before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And while the president said he is open to discussions with President Putin, it was only on the grounds of trying to find a pathway to end the current conflict. What you have seen, though, there has been obviously harsh and sharp language, as Oren laid out in terms terms of the response, but there's also been a very methodical diplomatic approach here in terms of summoning the ambassador uh, to the State Department, uh, making very clear with the language and the statements that they've put out uh, their displeasure for what transpired and how they felt like this was significantly problematic. But there has been no sense from U.S. officials right now that there's any desire to escalate things any further right now, just using words and cautioning Russian officials about what happened. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman, Phil Manningly, Ivan Watson, thank you to all of you. Uh, let's bring in the former Secretary of Defense for Donald Trump, Mark Esper. Mr. Secretary, good to see you. Do you agree with the U.S. Okay. Air Force's assessment that this incident could lead to, quote, unintended escalation? Well, first of all, it is certainly reckless, and I would say that it's certainly in intentional. The question is, was the intent, uh, did it emanate from the cockpit, or was it directed by somebody further up the chain of command? And yes, indeed, it could lead to unintentional escalation, if not controlled. Uh, you know, during my tenure, we had uh, uh, similar incidents happen where uh, Russian aircraft would overfly our ships or approach very closely our bombers. 
uh, but never nothing like this. So I think it needs to be addressed very seriously. I don't think we should overreact. I suspect right now within the Pentagon, uh, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs staff on down, they are reaching out to their counterparts to find out exactly what happened, to communicate with them, and to find what find out what the Russian explanation really is. And I think that will dictate in some ways our response. Not long ago, uh, the State Department spokesman Ned Price said that while he can't speak to Russia's intentions, quote, the motivations matter much less than what actually transpired. I guess the idea that the Russian jet was following and, you know, playing chicken with this drone for 30 to 40 minutes. Do, do you agree with that? Well, no, intentions do matter. I mean, that, that, that makes a big difference. But regardless, uh, the, the behavior by the pilots was reckless and unsafe and unprofessional. Uh, they shouldn't be dumping fuel on our aircraft. That breaks the rules of the road. And I suspect what they were trying to do is fly so close that the Reaper drone would get caught up in jet wash and maybe plummet into the sea on its own. And they just happened to bump into it as well. All of this is very dangerous behavior. And again, it could lead to, to unintentional escalation. That's why I think reaching out behind the scenes to the Russians is very important. I think we'll know more in the next 24 hours. But we also need to assert publicly as well as privately that, look, we're not going to tolerate this behavior because if, if you don't do that, then you'll see an uptick from the Russians against us and our allies in the Black Sea region. And of course, we are flying in international airspace, so uh, it's completely unjustified. The latest CNN poll of Republican uh, presidential candidates has your former boss, President Trump, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis basically neck and neck. Uh, DeSantis told Fox News last night that the war in Ukraine is a, quote, territorial dispute. Uh, He said it's not vital to U.S. interests. Do you agree? Well, look, there are only two countries in the world that threaten the United States existence, and that's China and Russia. And uh, Russia has invaded a sovereign uh, country. Uh, overtaken a large chunk of its territory. I do think it's in our vital interest because, uh, you know, we have to help defend the democracies of the world. We have to push back against autocrats like uh, Vladimir Putin. And if you don't push back, that means they'll go elsewhere and eventually it comes home to your shores. I think the other thing, the reason why we want to help the Ukrainians as well, is they are knocking down and beating back the Russian army in a way that only helps us. And at the same time, the Western resolve here with regard to Moscow sends a clear message to Beijing that we will stand up to them as well if they decide to uh, take action against Taiwan. Well, what do you make of the fact that the two leading candidates for uh, president in the Republican Party right now have such a different view and different assessment of this than you do? I I don't know. I think you can only chalk it up to politics. I mean, I I consider myself a Reagan Republican and ask myself, how would Ronald Reagan approach this? And I suspect that President Reagan would support a, a young democracy fighting for its life. And that's kind of how I look at it, the lens through which I look at it. And I think we as Americans, the United States, have a responsibility to lead the free world. Now, look, it doesn't mean there are blank checks and there shouldn't be accountability. I think we can manage all these things, but we have to we have to abide by our principles and live up to our values. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. Thanks, Jake. As we get even closer to the 2024 presidential race, a brand new CNN poll shows just how much of a hold Donald Trump still has on Republican voters. We'll have the numbers next. In our politics lead, regrets. He's had a few, but he's certainly done it his way. Former President Donald Trump told reporters this week he regrets endorsing then-Congressman Ron DeSantis for Florida governor in 2018. A brand new CNN poll might tell us why he regrets it, because 36% of people who say they may vote in the 2024 GOP primary say they would back DeSantis. Trump is just barely ahead at 40%. That's within the margin of error, though. 
Trump's Iowa appearance yesterday was a DeSantis bashing fest. Today in our behalf of DeSantis, DeSanctimonious, DeSanctimonious. Now, Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. Do you know that? And we don't even know if he's running, but I might as well tell you. If he's not running, I'll say he was fine on ethanol. Don't worry about it. Just, just one of many, many shots he took. Uh, but ethanol, that means a lot to Iowans. Uh, David Jallion, our CNN political director, is here to discuss. So we heard some very enthusiastic Trump supporters in Iowa so looking at the poll, how loyal are Trump supporters right now overall? Yeah, I thought this was one of the more interesting findings. Obviously, commitment and enthusiasm are not bad things to have among your supporters. Donald Trump has them here. So if you look at our poll, among Trump supporters, 76% say they're locked into him and they're not going to change their mind. 59% of DeSantis supporters say that about their candidate. So that, that shows that Donald Trump has real commitment. Also, we look at enthusiasm 51% of Trump supporters consider themselves, call themselves to be very or extremely enthusiastic about participating in the 2024 primary. Well, 43% of DeSantis supporters say that, Jake. So again, he wins on the enthusiasm score. He wins on the commitment. But when we looked at like first and second choice put together, DeSantis actually tops Trump. So DeSantis has room to grow. Trump may have a lower ceiling, but with that kind of stickiness, it could be sufficiently high to win the nomination. Yeah. But people who will come out in the middle of winter and vote in an Iowa snowstorm. Uh, this new CNN poll shows a very clear education divide also within the GOP field. Right. So we know education is a political fault line overall in American politics, but so too is it inside the Republican Party. If you look here among college graduates, DeSantis has the advantage, 41 percent to 23 percent for Trump, nearly two to one. If you look at the non-college graduates, you see it's a Trump Home court advantage there, 48% for Trump, 34% for DeSantis, Pence at six, Haley down at three. Here, here's what I think it shows. DeSantis, if you watch how he's operating, clearly thinks he can dig into that non-college educated base support of Trump, win some of that over while trying to maintain this advantage with college educated. He sees that as the path to the nomination. That's interesting. And what do voters say is essential for what they're looking for in a Republican presidential nominee? Jake, above all else, they're looking for somebody who has sharpness and stamina. That is what 87% of Republicans say. So obviously, they see that as a contrast with Joe Biden. It's one of the major critiques we are. But then 59% say maintaining Social Security and Medicare is essential to their supporting a candidate, followed by the person representing the party's future. You notice you were talking about Ukraine in the last segment, way down there at 36% opposing U.S. involvement in Ukraine is essential to Republican voters. So DeSantis is not taking a position here that is high on the essential needs list for Republican primary voters. Right. Okay. Interesting. David Chellian, thank you so sure. much. As Trump appears to be top of mind for many Republican voters, he's also top of mind for Manhattan prosecutors who are nearing a decision on whether to charge the former president over that $130,000 payment made to adult film star and director Stormy Daniels in 2016, just days before the presidential election, hush money to stop her from going public about her encounter, her affair with Trump a decade earlier. With us now, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. He's the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, what are the New York State charges here that, that, are, could, that could be in play, and what would be the possible consequences uh, if there is a conviction, ultimately. So, Jake, this is the Manhattan district attorney who has the power to charge 
New York state criminal law. So there's two laws we're looking at here. The first one is falsification of business records. The idea being that these payments, which were actually to silence Stormy Daniels, were booked improperly as legal fees to Michael Cohen. If there is a conviction on that, though, that is a misdemeanor, meaning the max penalty is just up to one year in prison. But realistically, nobody goes to prison for a first time misdemeanor. The second potential crime is if prosecutors can can tie the falsification of bank records to some other crime. In this case, it would be campaign finance violation, meaning this payment actually was meant to protect Donald Trump's electoral prospects. If they can prove that, it's a felony. It's the lowest level New York felony. It's class E out of A to E. The maximum penalty there is four years. However, it's quite common for people to get convicted of class E felonies and also not get sentenced to prison. That'll be up to a judge. So we're, we're clearly... Election season has begun. Donald Trump is in Iowa attacking Ron DeSantis, who was also just in Iowa. Does the fact that Trump is a declared candidate and the race is on have any legal or or practical impact on whether or not the prosecutors go forward with this? So legally, no, there's no impact here. A person can run for and even hold the office up to and including the presidency, even if they're indicted even if they've been convicted. But Jake, I think as a practical matter, this is going to make prosecutors' jobs that much more difficult. It's already, I think, hard enough to get a jury of 12 unanimously to convict a former president for the first time in U.S. history, who, as David Chalian's data just showed, is quite popular in some quarters. Never mind asking a jury in 2024, when a trial would likely to happen, in the middle of primaries, to convict the person who's probably going to be among the leaders for one of the major party nominations. So I think prosecutor's job is going to be extraordinarily difficult here. This payment to Stormy Daniels happened almost seven years ago. How does that play here legally or, or just practically? So prosecutors are going to be okay under the statute of limitations, which usually is five years, but there's a unique provision of New York state law that puts that time on hold if someone's been living out of state as Donald Trump has been. However, again, juries are human beings. And if you're standing in front of a jury as a prosecutor talking about something that happened almost seven years ago, I mean, the president at the time was Barack Obama. That's how long ago this is. It's hard to then tell the jury, this is urgent. This is important. This is serious. So I think the amount of time that has passed really undermines the urgency and and in some sense, the credibility of these charges if we do see them. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, The impact of two major storms flooding on the West Coast, dangerous snow, wind, and rain in the Northeast. CNN's live with both scenes ahead. President Biden speaking now in Monterey Park, California, on gun violence. Let's listen. Responders, faith leaders, community members, all here today. You've shown up for this community, and I know you always will. To the families of victims who spend time I get a chance to speak with today and whom Vice President Harris spent time with a few weeks ago. I'm here on behalf of the American people to mourn with you, to pray with you, to let you know you are loved and not alone. Every case is different, but I know what it's like. I know what it's like to get that call. I know what it's like to be told. I know what it's like to lose a loved one so suddenly. It's like losing a piece of your soul. It's like a black hole in your chest you feel like you're being sucked into. Suffocating. Hardly able to breathe. The anger, the pain. The depths of the loss so profound it's hard to explain. The suddenness tends to magnify the grief. 
As time passes, the shock and numbness slowly make way for the sobering reality of their absence. An empty chair at the dinner table, the birthdays, the anniversaries, the holidays, without them. Everyday things, small things, the detail you miss the most, the scent when you open that closet door, the park you go by that you used to stroll in, the morning tea you shared together, the bend of his smile, the perfect pitch of her laugh. As Judy shared with me, this is a tight-knit community with intergenerational households and deep reverence and respect for its elders. Community that's opened its heart and its homes to friends and neighbors and stood strong throughout the pandemic as anti-Asian hate crimes rose. Community that, in the face of horrific tragedy, has become a symbol of hope and resilience. Pushing forward together, healing together, People from all faiths and backgrounds rallying to show their love and support, raising money for funeral costs and memorials, providing counseling and translation services to the victims' families, providing and proving that even with heavy hearts, we have unbreakable spirits. As a nation, we remember them. Immigrants from China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Taiwan, all of whom found a home in America. Mr. Ma, age 72, a pillar of the community, a beloved manager and dance instructor at Star Ballroom. He walked patrons to their cars at night, helped new immigrants find jobs. His children and grandchildren will carry on his legacy in the spirit of one of his favorite Chinese proverbs, cherish the people in front of you. Cherish the people in front of you. And Egal, 72, Mr. Nice, for his kindness, his positivity, his infectious smile. Free spirit, always ready to lend a helping hand. He died shielding his dance partner. Showed you on you, 57, devoted mom, wife, sister, woman of faith, always there to help others, bringing food and newspapers to family members who had trouble walking. Always, always working tirelessly with her husband to build a future for their three children. Nancy Jian, 62, known as Sister Sunshine. She loved to play cards, piano, and weekly volleyball games. Always uh, sharing her homegrown plants and vegetables with neighbors and friends. A dedicated mom, married nearly 40 years. Husband and wife who are always together, even in their last dance. Valentino Alvero, 68 years old. Servant of God. Life of the party. Storyteller made the whole room laugh, a man devoted to his children and his grandchildren. May May Manon, 65, bedrock of her family and friends, eternal optimist, avid dancer who'd visit the studio every weekend, 
often leaving snacks behind for her classmates. She radiated positive energy through her laughter, her kind words, and her smile. Moi Dayun, 67, refugee, community builder, cherished friend, known for her kindness, her sweetness, her generosity, her beloved family, the center of her world. Diana Tom, seven years old, devoted daughter, wife, mother, grandmother, who loved to sing karaoke. A giver and an adventurer who loved to explore new foods and travel the world. Charles Zhao, 76, grateful, reflective, believed in living to the life to the fullest. He constantly showed his family and friends and showered them with warm words of encouragement, hope, and love. Tao Yo, 64, a lifelong learner. He retired as a business manager and was pursuing a second career as a pharmacist while caring for his elder mother, elderly mother. A man beloved by his wife, children, and friends for his compassion, his determination, and his wisdom. Lily Lee, 63, a matriarch with absolute strength, optimism, and grace. Her daughter wrote, stolen is a grandmother whose granddaughter fell asleep many nights nestled between her loving arms. Taken away is the opportunity for her grandson to feel her love and warmth. All of them live lives of love, sacrifice, and service for their families, for their community. They represent a bigger story, who we are as Americans, embodying the simple truth that our diversity, our diversity is the strength of this nation. We saw that strength in Maria Young. into creating a warm, welcome space seniors. That strength in Brandon Say, who met me at the airport, whom Jill and I have gotten to know. 20 minutes after the rampage, at Star Studio, just two miles away, pointing a gun at him. In an instant, he found the courage to act and wrestle a semi-automatic firearm away. Brandon's semi-automatic firearm away. Brandon saved lives. He protected the community. At Half Moon Bay, just two days later, and they got it. Brandon, stand up. Half Moon Bay, just two days later, we saw heroism from police officers, firefighters, and other first responders who rushed into the danger to save lives. As many of you know, Jill and I invited Brandon as our guest at the State of the Union message because we wanted the country to know all of you, not just Brandon, all of you, the character of this community, the faith you have in this community, the pride. We see across 
We see it in you across all of American life. Just this week, a film about resilience and power of the Asian-American immigrant family made history at the Oscars. Echoing the heart of so many in this community. We also hear a message we've heard too often, including two years ago this week, after the spa shooting in the Atlanta Atlanta area. Enough. Do something. We remember and mourn today, but I'm here with you today to act. Last year, after the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, I signed into law after being both places a Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, most significant gun safety law in almost 30 years. That was in addition to me signing more executive actions to reduce gun violence than any of my predecessors at this point in the presidencies. Today, I'm announcing another executive order that will accelerate and intensify this work to save more lives more quickly. First, this executive order helps keep firearms out of dangerous hands. As I continue to call on Congress to require background checks for all firearm sales, And in the meantime, in the meantime, my executive order directs my attorney general to take every lawful action possible, possible to move us as close as we can to universal background checks without new legislation. I just, it's just common sense to check whether someone is a felon, a domestic abuser, before they buy a gun. The executive order also expands public awareness campaigns about the red flag orders, laws, which my son, when he, before he died, attorney general in Delaware, was a great proponent of an institute. So more parents, teachers, police officers, health providers, and counselors know how to flag for the a court that someone is exhibiting violent tendencies, threatening classmates, or experiencing suicidal thoughts that make them a danger to themselves and others and temporarily remove that person's access to firearms. And it promotes this executive order, safe storage of firearms, something every responsible gun owner agrees with. Second thing it does, the executive order ramps up our efforts to hold the gun industry accountable. It's the only outfit you can't sue these days. It does that by calling out for an independent government study that analyzes and exposes how gun manufacturers aggressively market firearms to civilians, especially minors, including by using military imagery. And it directs the attorney general to public release, publicly release alcohol, tobacco and, fam- and firearms inspection reports of firearms dealers who are cited for violation of the law. That way, policymakers can strengthen laws to crack down on those illegal gun dealers and the public can avoid purchasing from them. Third, the executive order improves federal coordination to support victims, survivors, and their families and communities affected by mass shootings. The same way FEMA responds to your natural disaster in California and all around the nation, and it will help folks recover and build after what they help 
folks recover and build after wildfires and superstorms and droughts. For example, we need to provide more mental health support and grief for grief and trauma. And more financial assistance when a family loses the sole breadwinner or when a small business shuts down due to a lengthy shooting investigation. There's more in this executive order, but I'm not stopping there. Last week, I laid out on my budget that we invest more in safer communities and expand access to mental health services for those affected by gun violence. Congressional Republicans should pass my budget instead of calling for cuts in these services or defunding the police or abolishing the FBI, as we hear from our MAGA Republican friends. But let's be clear. None of this absolves Congress the responsibility from the responsibility of acting to pass universal background checks, eliminate gun manufacturers' immunity from liability. And I'm determined, once again, to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. I led that fight in, to ban them in 1994. The 10 years that law was in place, mass shootings went down. Our Republican friends let it expire when it, 10 years later. And mass shootings tripled since then, tripled. So let's finish the job. Ban assault weapons. Ban them again. Do it now. Enough. Do something. Do something big. <laughs> Folks, let me close with this. Scripture says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. A lot of us have been there. If you gather here today, I know your hearts are broken, but I know your spirits are strong. And as you remember and heal, I know the light of your loved one once again, going to lead you forward. It takes time. I tell everyone, at least it did with me, it takes time. But I promise you, I promise you, the day will come when the memory of your loved one brings a smile to your lips before it brings a tear to your eye. A tear will never fully go away. But when you had that smile first remembrance, that's when you know that's when you know you're going to make it. You're going to know you're going to make it. My prayer for all of you, that day will come sooner than later, but I promise you, it will come. God bless you all. I admire you so damn much. We've been listening to President Biden speaking in Monterey Park, California, discussing efforts to reduce gun violence in a city in a city still grieving after one of this year's many horrific mass shootings. And soon the president is expected to meet with families and victims of that attack from January 11th. That's when a gunman opened fire during a Lunar New Year's celebration. I, I want to bring in Josh Campbell, who's in Monterey Park. Josh, um, President Biden is is taking some executive actions today. Uh, what do they do? Uh, is it significant? 
Yeah, Jake, you know, what this is is essentially the White House, White House saying that we know that this isn't what uh, gun control advocates have been asking for in totality. This isn't an assault weapons ban. This is not uh, universal background checks. It's not universal red flag laws. But, you know, it depends on how you measure success. The White House here saying that we're not just going to throw up our hands in the wake of all of these mass shootings across the United States, but we're going to try to do something. And as the president just laid out, what will be in this executive order that he will soon sign uh, includes a focus on more background checks. He is actually directing the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to focus more on ensuring that firearm sellers out there are doing their due diligence. That's actually required by law to ensure that background checks are conducted in certain circumstances. And that is a different frame of mind for the Justice Department. You know, the president's saying, don't just go out and prosecute people who aren't following the law, but try to get ahead of those violations to begin with and make these gun sellers aware of their duty to actually conduct these background checks. Now, the second aspect here has to do with what are these so-called uh, red flag laws. And that is, if you have a loved one uh, that you think may be a danger to themselves or a danger to someone else, in 19 states, including the District of Columbia, you can go to a judge and petition a court uh, to temporarily uh, remove firearms from the possession of that individual. And so what the Biden administration here is doing is basically charging his entire cabinet to create an awareness campaign. So people who are out there that are in these states where these red law, uh, flag laws uh, apply, they know how to actually use these tools in order to try to save lives. And it's worth pointing out, Jake, that the location where I'm at here now, this is not an accident, this location. Monterey Park, of course, the scene in January of a mass shooting that took 11 lives here, uh, injured nine other people by a shooter who eventually uh, took his own life. The president here speaking in front of survivors as well as local lawmakers here as he continues to call on uh, more action by Congress. Of course, he's laying out what he's going to do with this executive action, but it's worth pointing out that those more stringent requirements will actually require some type of com compromise in Congress, which of course uh, appears very likely it passes any pro pre prelude to what's to come. All right, Josh Campbell in Monterey Park, California. Thank you so much. And this is The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what is in your water? The so-called forever, forever chemicals that linger in the human body and can cause serious illnesses such as cancer. It turns out they're in drinking water everywhere. Plus, it's a political power play playing out in a battleground state. The state Supreme Court in North Carolina rehearing a case that could determine who controls Congress in 2024 and beyond. And leading this hour, a U.S. drone is forced down by a Russian fighter jet while flying in international airspace over the Black Sea. U.S. military officials say one of the Russian jets intentionally flew in front of an unmanned American MQ-9 Reaper drone. The Russian jet hit the drone, damaging the drone's propeller. This is the first time Russia and U.S. military aircraft have come into direct contact since Russia launched its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. A spokesman for the U.S. Air Force called Russia's actions today, quote, reckless, unsound, and unprofessional. Let's bring in CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who's at the Pentagon for us. Melissa Bell is live for us in Lviv, Ukraine. Melissa, let's start with you. This is coming at an already incredibly tense time in the region. What are we hearing today from Ukrainian and Russian officials about this incident in the Black Sea? 
Well, what we're getting, Jake, from the Russian Ministry of Defense in Moscow is a direct contradiction uh, to what the United States has said so far about the drone incident. What the Russians are saying, Jake, is that there was no contact at all and that that drone went down into the Black Sea as a result of sharp maneuvering. Moscow accusing that drone of flying without transponders. Now, those are uh, the devices that allow a plane or a drone to be tracked. And that is in violation, says Russia, of the temporary measures that were put in place uh, for the special military operation in that area. Of course, the euphemism that Russia uses for its invasion uh, of Ukraine. What seems to have happened, according to Russia, is that drone was detected just off the coast of the Crimean, Crimean Peninsula. Uh, Russian fighter jets scrambled uh, to get up there, identified what Russia describes as the intruder, and a sharp maneuver then saw that drone crash into the Black Sea. Now, we had seen, as you say, uh, a lot of tension around the Black Sea. There is an awful lot of military hardware up there as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. And what we've heard from the United States is that we've seen a history, really, recently of uh, aggressive action or dangerous action on the, on the part of Russian pilots. I think the key question here at this stage, Jake, is whether those Russian fighter pilots got too close to that drone by accident or whether there may have been a deliberate attempt to take it down. For the time being, we just don't know. And Natasha, the state the State Department has summoned Russia's ambassador uh, to meet with officials at the U.S. State Department here in Washington. What does that mean? Yeah, Jake, we are told that that meeting actually just wrapped between the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, and the Assist Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Karen Donfried. Look, it basically just means that the U.S. is going to send a very sharp protest to the Russians over this incident. They want an explanation from Antonov over why this happened, and they want to express, of course, their displeasure uh, with the fact that it happened. Because as has been alluded to, intercepts of this kind are not uncommon, but the uh, behavior of the pilots. That is what has been very unusual here. The pilots, uh, just to re remind our viewers, they actually flew very, very close to this plane, uh, to this drone, dumping a whole lot of jet fuel on top of it, and then at one point actually got close to the propeller of the drone, which then hit the propeller and forced it, the U.S. military to actually take that drone over, down over international waters. So what we're hearing, of course, is a very stern statement from both the Pentagon and the White House about how this is, this is very unacceptable, because I should note, Jake, that we're not talking about a small commercial drone. We are talking about a very large drone that is extremely long, that is extremely large, and if it came down in an unsafe way, it could have caused serious damage, of course, not only to the drone, but also to the Russian fighter aircraft. So U.S. officials also briefing allies on this incident, making it very clear to the Russians that moving forward, this is just not going to be acceptable, Jake. And Melissa, this comes at an incredibly tense time in the brutal fight uh, for the Bakhmut area, uh, how are things going? Uh, what's the latest from the ground there? Well, for the time being, the Ukrainians continue uh, to defend that city, Jake, with all the huge loss of life on all sides, the devastation to the city. And that, of course, is a result, as we've begun to understand over the course of the last few days, of this battle within a battle that's been going on, not just between Ukrainians and Russians for uh, control of what has become an extremely symbolic city after all these many weeks and months of siege and battle, uh, but also a battle between the regular Russian forces led by the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Mercer 
mercenaries led by Evgeny Prigozhin, with speculation now about whether or not some kind of trap may have been led, left for Evgeny Prigozhin uh, by uh, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, uh, given the huge loss of life to his men and the very open war of words that we've seen between them over the course of the last few weeks. And that in part explains what's been happening at once, how devastated the city is and just how costly it's been to the Russian side in terms of manpower, Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand and Melissa Bell, thank you so much. Let's bring in White House National Security Council spokesman, Rear Admiral John Kirby. Admiral Kirby, uh, the U.S. Air Force characterized this uh, move today, quote, as aggressive actions by Russia. They said it could lead to, quote, unintended escalation. Um, That's some strong language if this was just a misunderstanding. What kind of escalation? Well, I mean, first of all, I think Natasha covered it. I mean, somebody could have gotten hurt. Uh, Nobody wants to see that happen. Uh, And it could it could lead to to miscalculations between, you know, two uh, two militaries uh, that are operating, not obviously uh, in Ukraine together, but certainly uh, in in proximity in the region. And we don't want to see this war escalate beyond what it already has done to the uh, Ukrainian people. Uh, And so this is this is clearly this was inappropriate, uh, unsafe, uh, unprofessional conduct by the Russian pilots. So the Kremlin has been lying about the war since before they promised they weren't going to launch it. But that said, the Russian Ministry of Defense uh, said this afternoon that its planes did not use airborne weapons or come into contact with the drone. Uh, What is your response to their denial? And will the Biden administration provide proof? Well, it won't surprise you that we obviously refute the the Russian denial. And I think anybody, uh, after a year now, Jake, should take everything that the Russians say about what they're doing in and around Ukraine with a huge grain of salt. Um, as for proof, uh, the, the, we're, we're looking at some imagery to see if, uh, if any of that might be suitable to put out there, but no decisions yet made on that. We're also hearing the drone has yet to be recovered. Uh, how concerning is that, especially if Russia ends up getting there first and, and seizing the drone and collecting intelligence from it? Well, without getting into too much detail, I can uh, what I can say is that uh, we've taken steps to protect uh, uh, our equities with respect uh, to, to that particular drone, that particular uh, aircraft, uh, and it's the United States property. Uh, we obviously don't want to see anybody uh, getting their hands on it uh, uh, beyond beyond us. So the Russian ambassador to the United States was summoned to the U.S. State Department. Uh, Ned Price, the spokesman for the State Department, says U.S. officials are going to voice their strong objections. Uh, to what happened. Um, you used to have that job at the State Department. How do you, how do you walk the line of keeping, keeping diplomatic relations open while making it clear that the U.S. Uh, believes that Russia crossed yeah. a line? One of, the, one of the advantages of having diplomatic lines open is so that you can do exactly what the State Department did today, which is call the ambassador in um, and, and walk them through uh, the ver- our very significant and very real concerns over this unsafe and unprofessional uh, conduct by, by Russian pilots. You, that's why you want the lines of communication open, so that you can actually have those kinds of very direct inter- inter- interchanges uh, and lay bare and lay clean uh, what your concerns are. Uh, and also, I want to ask you, President Biden uh, just uh, announced this deal, this multi-phase submarine deal with the U.K. Right. and Australia being described as a zone defense against China. Of course, this plan is going to take decades to unfold. Uh, what if China just develops what they need to develop more quickly than the U.S., U.K. and Australia? 
Well, a couple of thoughts there, Jake. First of all, it's not it's not designed against China. It's designed to improve our alliances and partnerships, our networks in the Indo-Pacific region. And this one is unique because it also brings in a key ally from the Atlantic region, the UK, uh, into the Indo-Pacific in an even more significant way than they already have been engaged. This is about re- bolstering our uh, our network, our alliances and partnerships in the region to help us collectively deal with a range of threats and challenges. Uh, and China's course of and aggressive activities is just but one of them is North Korea you know they've just uh, they announced the other day that they launched a submarine launched uh, uh, a cruise missile uh, you've got Russia still on the Indo-Pacific in that region and trying to to affect our ability to operate there so there's a lot going on in that region and, and this deal this AUKUS deal is really designed to help all three of us uh, operate uh, and maintain uh, professional nuclear powered submarines in, in a much better way. Is there any uh, updates you can provide us on any of the Americans being detained unfairly throughout the country? I'm I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Lieutenant Alconis uh, in in Japan uh, or Paul Whelan in Russia. I wish I had some specific updates for you, Jake. What I can tell you is that we are working on all these cases very actively every day. Uh, and there's other, as you know, there's three of uh, uh, U.S. nationals that are being wrongfully detained in Iran as well. Uh, they're never far from our mind, Jake. We're working on their cases every day. Sadly, I just don't have any specific details to provide. All right. Rear Admiral John Kirby, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Coming up, what's going on with your money? A wild day with warnings about the stability of the entire U.S. banking system. Then... It was, quote, entirely avoidable, the newest fight over the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. That's ahead. Turning now to our money lead, investors are breathing sighs of relief as bank stocks rebounded in an economic turnaround from this time yesterday. The Dow closing up 336 points today. But this does come as pressure is continuing to mount on the Federal Reserve over its decision on whether to raise interest rates while the failure of two banks over the weekend calls for caution. An inflation report today showed in some areas of the market prices continue to rise. CNN's Richard Quest is with us. And Richard, the Fed is under a lot of pressure. How do they weigh the mixed signals happening in the economy right now? Absolutely. You've got the inflation numbers, which were hot. You've got a banking potential crisis, although that's not actually full-fledged yet, which would, again, you don't really want to raise interest rates and make a bad situation worse. But at the same time, with these current economic numbers, you really do need to slow the economy. It is an impossible situation, which is why they will be very relieved today that the market seem to suggest that the banking crisis is abating. It's not gone away, but it's certainly not as bad or as uh, potentially catastrophic as it might have been. The bank stocks were up. There was a certain amount of confidence that had come back, Jake. So you don't think that we're necessarily in the clear, but do you think we've avoided a full-blown banking catastrophe? Too soon to say. I don't think we were ever looking at a full-blown banking catastrophe. There's always the potential of a mega disaster, if you will, in the banking sector because something goes wrong. No, I think the reality here is 
that these banks that have been hit were the victims of their own incompetence, stupidity, misfortune, whatever word you want to use. The big major banks are rock solid. And what they now, what, they, what they're basically doing, the authorities, is ring fencing those that really should have known better. There's no mega banking crisis on the horizon, according to everything I hear. All right, Richard Quest, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Gary Cohn. He's the vice chairman of IBM. He served as the director of the National Economic Council uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, Gary, good to see you. In 2018, about a month after you resigned uh, from the White House, President Trump signed a bill that rolled back parts of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act, which eased restrictions on some banks. Uh, President Biden uh, and some others have said that this rollback may have contributed to this banking failure. Uh, Progressive economist Dean Baker told The Intercept, quote, this was a 100 percent avoidable problem. That bill raised the asset threshold above which banks have to undergo stress tests from $50 billion to $250 billion. SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, would have been required to undergo regular stress tests before the revision, unquote. Um, Do you think these rollbacks contributed to the bank failures we're seeing now? So, Jake, thanks for having me. Look, I I do not. And and I think it's really important to understand when you put these banks into these very arduous stress tests that our largest banks in America have, these globally systemically important banks, it's very costly. It's very expensive. And who bears the cost of that? The depositors bear the cost of that. The banks have to charge someone for that expense, and they take it out of the rate that they're willing to pay depositors. It also would have forced many of these small and medium-sized biz- banks, and we're talking about medium-sized biz- banks, $50 billion to $250 billion, it would have forced them out of business. They would not have been competitive with the larger banks because the larger banks can amortize these enormous regulatory costs over trillions of dollars of assets. What what the Trump administration rolled back had nothing to do with capital. It had nothing to do with liquidity. We had an old-fashioned bank run here. And what happens in a bank run is all of the depositors want their money out simultaneously. Banks are not equipped to allow all of the deposits out simultaneously. Remember, banks are really important for the U.S. economy. They take depositors' money and they lend it out to stimulate economic growth. They lend it out so people can buy houses, they can buy cars, they can get educations, and they can have credit cards. So banks will never be able to replenish all of their deposits in one day. It's not the way the system was ever designed. Right. Take a listen to Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, a critic of the rollback of some of these Dodd uh, Frank uh, regulations, um, predicting that this might happen. This is on the floor in 2018. Just yesterday, the Congressional Budget Office told us that the legislation we are debating today will, and I quote, increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between $100 billion and $250 billion would fail. End of quote. That's the CBO. In other words, this legislation makes it more likely that we will see another financial crisis. So here's a CBO report. Um, it does mention uh, that, that repealing the regulations would increase the likelihood that a bank this side, Silicon Valley Bank, with I think it was $206 billion, something like that. Um, is it not possible that an additional stress test might have revealed some of the bad management decisions being made by Silicon Valley banks, such as overinvesting in treasury bonds, et cetera? 
Well, Jake, anything is possible. But remember, this is a bipartisan piece of legislation. We have to remember that. There were 67 senators that approved this piece of legislation. If my memory serves me correct, that means that 17 Democrats supported this legislation because they understood that medium-sized banks in this country are so important to the economic stability of our country and that we had to get them in a position where they could compete with the largest banks. If you go back to a few years ago, we were all worried about the biggest banks in this country becoming too big. Remember, too big to fail. Um, so we, we understand that there are huge costs in this regulation and we want to have as many banks as possible. Unfortunately, over the last few years, over the last decade, we've only seen banks disappear in the United States. We don't see new banks created. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand there's a big, huge cost to regulation and that's borne by the ultimate depositor. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, it's uh, bipartisan. I think 17 Democratic senators and I think 31 House Democrats. Um, Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers says there is no systemic uh, banking issue. Uh, Mark Zandi from Moody's told me yesterday that Silicon Valley's bank uh, collapse will not cause a recession. Do you, do you agree with those assessments? This is not systemic. I, I agree with that. It, it, as Richard Quest said, the largest banks in the United States are very well capitalized. They're in amazingly good shape. And most, almost all the banks in the United States are in very good shape and have enormous amount of capital. We had a bank run. There's nothing you can do to prevent a bank run. And in fact, we have FDIC insurance in this country because the regulators know that you can have a bank run. That's why we insure deposits. If the possibility of a bank run didn't exist, we wouldn't bother having a deposit insurance corporation in the United States. This is just the reality of the way banks are structured, and we need them to be structured that way to drive economic growth and prosperity. All right, Gary Cohn, good to see you again. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Things are already getting ugly on the campaign trail. Next, Donald Trump slams one of his potential Republican rivals and a different Republican rival joins in. Topping our politics lead, Donald Trump made his first campaign stop to the site of the first in the nation Iowa caucuses, at least for Republicans, last evening since becoming a 2024 presidential candidate, giving Republican voters their first side-by-side comparison with him and his likely top 2024 rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who made his own Hawkeye State debut on Friday. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Davenport, Iowa, where Trump held his campaign event. Kristen, Trump, frankly, he tore into DeSantis during his speech. Tell us what he had to say. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Calling out DeSantis by name, going after him for a bill he supported while he was in Congress that would have limited the use of ethanol. Clearly a large industry here in Iowa, attacking him over his past support of reforming entitlements. But most of all, Trump making it very clear who he believes his chief rival is at this time. Ron DeSantis. Did anyone ever hear of DeSantis? DeSanctimonious. DeSanctimonious. Now, Ron DeSantis strongly opposed ethanol. He also fought against Social Security. He wanted to decimate it and voted against it three times. Voted against Social Security. That's a bad one. But you have to remember, Ron was a disciple of Paul Ryan, who is a rhino loser who currently is destroying Fox. And to be honest with you, Ron reminds me a lot of Mitt Romney. So as he was here, 
trying to link him, trying to link DeSantis to the establishment party to say that he was the establishment candidate, it's important to note that DeSantis himself was actually aligning himself with former President Trump on an issue that has divided Republicans, and that is Ukraine. DeSantis last night in a statement to Tucker Carlson saying that Ukraine was just a territorial dispute between Russia and Ukraine. It was not something that should be a U.S. national interest, obviously putting him at odds with other Republicans and other 2024 hopefuls. All right, uh, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. Let's talk about this with my panel. And for the sake of this, just continuity with the Ukraine thing, guys in the control room, I want to go to soundbite sound number five. I'm jumping ahead here. Because uh, Donald Trump is accusing Ron DeSantis of changing his tune on Ukraine. And I think this is one of the things that he's referring to, because back in 2014, when then-Congressman Ron DeSantis was reacting to Russia seizing Crimea, here's part of what he had to say. We in the Congress have been urging the president, and I've been, to, to provide uh, arms to Ukraine. Right. Uh, they they want to fight their good fight. They're not asking us to fight it for them. Um, and the president has steadfastly refused. And um, I think that that's a mistake. He also criticized what he called, uh, DeSantis called Obama's weak policy versus Reagan's uh, peace through uh, strength. Trump's saying it's a, it's a flip-flop. What do you think? I haven't said this in probably a hundred years. Trump's right. <laughs> I mean, Trump's right. DeSantis has a record, a much more hawkish record. Ron DeSantis realized yesterday that to win the Republican Party nomination, you have to not care about Ukraine. Uh, he called it a territorial dispute. He knows that's where the the base is. Trump's right. I don't know that. I mean, that's not where the party is. That the might base, be where the base, the base is. is. Yeah, because uh, David Chalian was showing a poll earlier. It's only 36 percent want the U.S. to stop helping Ukraine of, of Republican voters. Right. It's where Donald Trump is, I think it's fair to say. And it is interesting to, to remember, to, to look at that and see how far the Republican Party has come. Because at, at that time... That very much what, what DeSantis was saying very much was the Republican position and to the point that they were really were acting like World War Three was starting and that the Obama administration was just dithering and that they weren't going to do anything about it. So I think DeSantis is just showing that he's willing to shift to move in the direction of going after the same group of voters that are with Donald Trump. Right. It's not the majority of people, but it's a block of people that move together. And, and Nikki Haley, uh, the former U.N. ambassador, who's all, who is actually a declared candidate, unlike Ron. DeSantis, uh, she says she agrees with Trump that DeSantis is flip-flopping, and she writes, quote, President Trump is right when he says Governor DeSantis is copying him, first in his style, then on entitlement reform, and now on Ukraine. I have a different style than President Trump, and while I agree with him on most policies, I do not on those. Republicans deserve a choice, not an (laughs) echo. Yeah, she's trying to stake out a different space. So one of the things that's interesting here is DeSantis and Trump are going after this block of Republican voters who do favor an isolationist stance. And you have Haley and Pence and some others who are not in that camp. And I think the question now is, is there a lane for those? Are there voters interested in hearing that Republican view? Right, right. And I also think, too, if we step back a little bit, the evolution of the Republican Party when it comes to the issue of Ukraine, when it comes to really um, supporting that 
traditional classic Republican view of a muscular foreign policy abroad. That shift is you can see that everywhere. You could not only see it in the 2024 presidential field as we're looking at it right now, but also on Capitol Hill, where there is a growing number of Republican lawmakers, many of them allied with Trump, who are skeptical of increased Ukraine aid, which is going to continue to be a priority of the White House in the future. So whether this is sort of a temporary shift in the party that's been spurred by the former president, Donald Trump, or if this is a permanent shift into a more isolationist stance by a party that hasn't been like that, is will be really interesting well, to see. And Jake, what's interesting is it, I don't know that it's just a block. I mean, even CNN's own polling, Trump and DeSantis together are almost 80 percent of the Republican vote. Yep. That's, I mean, that's a Trumpy lane. It's either Trump, DeSantis's supporters are Trump supporters. They just think DeSantis may be able to win. Well, it's yeah. interesting. There's more, there's more uh, educational difference. Uh, Republican college-educated voters are more likely to support DeSantis two to one than non-college-educated voters who are more likely to support uh, Trump, or what he, I think he once referred to as poorly-educated voters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the whole—it's it's a complicated thing because a lot of this also is because, of course, they have to do the opposite of whatever Joe Biden's doing, right? So if Joe Biden thinks that you should be helping Ukraine, then probably then they don't want to do it because then that's what Joe Biden is doing. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that it involves Russia and that there has been this weird kind of change in the Republican Party because of President Trump and his relationship with Russia, where suddenly you actually have these people that sort of like Russia now, and their focus is on, they have other enemies that they're focused on. China is their their main enemy, right? So it's not that they've become completely isolationist. It's just that in this situation, they really are following the lead of Donald Trump. And, and, and Catherine, listen to fellow Republican Floridian Marco Rubio, who's the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, responding to Ron DeSantis referring to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a territorial dispute. Well, it's not a territorial dispute in the sense that any more than it would be a territorial dispute if the United States decided that it wanted to invade Canada or take over the Bahamas. Um, just because someone claims something doesn't mean it, it belongs to them. This is an invasion. I mean, Senator Rubio is, is correct. It was an invasion of a sovereign country. Yes, and what you're seeing here is really the divide. Uh, you know, Rubio and other Republicans today have been really critical of DeSantis. There are a lot of leaders, Republican leaders on the Hill, who have been very supportive of aid to Ukraine. And speaker, uh, uh, Majority Leader, sorry, Senator McConnell has, has been vocal in his support. And I think, though, can they stick together to continue supporting the White House as they try and continue getting aid to Ukraine is going to be a key question going forward. So after the Iowa event, Trump uh, continued to attack DeSantis, political reports that Trump suggested uh, to a bunch of reporters that he regretted endorsing then-Congressman DeSantis uh, for governor uh, in 2018. He really did uh, help him win that primary, without question. And Trump went on to say, if it weren't for me, Ron DeSanctimonious would right now be working probably at a law firm or maybe a pizza hut. I don't know. No, somebody on my staff thought that that was an Italian slur. I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it was that thought out. But. I, I, I'm not quite sure of that either. But Trump is the, the former president is not wrong that he played a significant role in Ron DeSantis' oh, rise. His ads, DeSantis' ads were all about copying Trump. Right, right. I mean, do you? I remember the DeSantis ad when he was with his kids, and his kids were echoing "Build that wall." Right. Like, obviously, echoing what uh, President Trump had said during the 2016 campaign. And look, I was I was covering Congress when DeSantis was a you know was just a rank and file Republican. He was just one of many. It's not like he particularly stood out. He 
could have very easily lost that gubernatorial primary in Florida had uh, Trump not elevated him. So once the uh, once the pupil is kind of outshining the <laughs> outshining the teacher, you can kind of see why uh, the former president is getting irritated here. You know, Jake, one thing I, I think is really interesting about uh, Trump's visit to Iowa is that he wasn't just doing big rallies, which is a thing that he did in 2016. He really avoided doing retail events or smaller events. And you saw him at a restaurant. You saw him doing some of the smaller scale stuff, which says to me, he is worried. Like, he thinks he needs to do the kind of politicking that he felt he was above in his 2016 race. Well, and just in the poll, CNN's poll today, Donald Trump, uh, when it comes to Republican primary voters, 40 percent. Ron DeSantis, 36 percent. That's within the margin of error. And, and as you know, it, generally in these primaries, Trump has something of a ceiling. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Ron DeSantis has one, at least not yet. There's yeah, no but we don't it. know. Nobody right. knows DeSantis. <laughs> this is just the damnedest thing. But the uh, look, there's one lane right now in this Republican Party. It's the Trumpy lane. And that's the lane DeSantis is trying to fill as well. Nobody else in these polls even measures right now. Right. And it, 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 is, it is early. I mean... Yeah. Do you see a lane for, for Nikki Haley? She yeah. is a m- more traditional. <laughs> I didn't even finish yeah. that question. Next but question. But she's a more traditional. It's she not- actually is more like Mitt Romney. It's, not, it's, yeah. it's actually kind of ridiculous of Trump to say that Ron DeSantis reminds him of Mitt Romney. Yeah. There's nothing Romney-esque about him. Yeah. But Nikki Haley, I think there is. And I'm, I don't mean that pejoratively. Yeah. But she's a more establishment. Republican. I just don't think this is where the Republican Party is. It's, well, what is she? Maybe 15% of the party is her lane. Right? It's just not enough. I mean, I think there's there's the Trump lane and then there's... The kind of DeSantis, which is the Trump plus, right? So it's what's Trump plus? Trump what plus is he's got a lot of the bombastic, like you know, doing a lot of the name calling. The plus is that he is is smarter and you know more competent, and um, and I would actually argue in some ways crueler. You know, like he's, how is he crueler? Well, I mean, I just think the stuff about putting people on buses and sending them off to places—you know, uh, migrants sending them to places where there, plane, where there I, are yeah. no jobs. I mean, it was—it was extremely cruel. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think that, but he's shown that he's—he's he's willing to do those kinds of things, and I think he's a probably more competent leader. I'm not saying that he's—you know—that means he's good, but but he is a more competent leader. Republican-based voters want a Trump or a some sort of cruel authoritarian like a Trump. And well, there was a lot of interest in DeSantis in Iowa also when he was out. Yeah. There. He got big enthusiastic crowds, so I think that's a key sign too. I'll, I'll just also say that he won re-election with 60% of the vote and won a bunch of Democratic strongholds right. like Miami-Dade and mm-hmm. won the Latino vote, and it was a pretty impressive re-election. Thanks one and all uh, for being here. Uh, turning now to North Carolina, where the concern over political polarization is growing at the judicial level. The state's newly Republican-controlled Supreme Court will rehear two election-related cases, cases that had already been decided way, way, way back last year when Democrats held the majority on the court. Now they're going to be reheard. CNN's Diane Gallagher takes a closer look now at this extremely rare move and the larger political fight it represents. God save the state in this honorable court. In an incredibly rare move, the North Carolina State Supreme Court is rehearing a case it decided just last year. Tell us what has happened over the course of the past 88 days since we issued our opinion in this case that would mandate and compel a different result. 
The case itself, which centers on gerrymandering congressional and state legislative maps, hasn't changed. But the political makeup of the court has, flipping from a Democratic to Republican majority in November. The impact of this judicial redo could stretch far past the Tar Heel State, where the 14 congressional districts are evenly split between the parties, even shaping who controls the United States House of Representatives in 2024 and beyond. It's extremely unusual. I think it's possible, though, that it may become the new norm. If we've got a purple state like North Carolina, where partisanship on a court can flip on a dime, can flip in one election. So how did we get here? In February 2022, when Democrats held a 4-3 majority on the bench, the court declared the GOP-controlled legislature's original maps were an extreme partisan gerrymander that violated the state constitution's guarantee of free elections and must be redrawn. Republican lawmakers argued the court did not have standing to mandate new maps, claiming the U.S. Elections Clause gives state legislators legislatures, the authority to decide the time, place, and manner of elections. And in December, the final days of the Democratic majority, the court again rejected a second attempt at the maps, ordering a substitute map created by special masters instead. The rehearing was granted last month, shortly after the new justices were sworn in. Today, the Democratic justices once again pointing out the constitutional right to free elections. If the maps don't fairly reflect the voting strength of the people of the state, aren't you essentially seeking to prevent voters from exercising control over their own government? In a statement, North Carolina GOP Chairman Michael Watley says the case was about, quote, reestablishing the proper constitutional roles. The goal line has moved in some ways. It used to be conversations about, is this a gerrymander? Now the conversation is, does the court even have the right to rein in a gerrymander or can state legislatures do essentially what they want to do? And if that conversation, that argument sounds familiar to you, that's because this case, the one that was reheard today, is the underlying case for one that went before the U.S. Supreme Court in December. There were oral arguments about the so-called and controversial independent state legislature theory. In fact, Jake, the U.S. Supreme Court requested additional briefs from all the parties because of this rehearing to determine if it should even weigh in on that case anymore. And look, the North Carolina State Supreme Court is not done yet. They're rehearing a separate case tomorrow dealing with voter ID and whether people need to present a photo ID to vote, something that was also decided by the North Carolina Supreme Court just last year. All right, Diane Gallagher in Charlotte, North Carolina for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, new legal trouble for Norfolk Southern as the fight over the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment plays out. Stay with us. In our national lead, Ohio has filed a federal lawsuit against Norfolk Southern over last month's toxic chemical derailment in East Palestine. So many residents of that town and the surrounding area are worried that their headaches and their rashes and other symptoms may be tied to the release of those chemicals. CNN correspondent Gabe Cohen is here. Gabe, Ohio's attorney general held a news conference today. What did he have to say about the lawsuit? Well, in short, he basically said the goal here is to hold Norfolk Southern financially responsible, not just for the derailment, but for the entire aftermath, including cleaning up more than a million gallons of hazardous chemicals. Now, on the derailment itself, the lawsuit alleges Norfolk Southern could have prevented this. And part of that 
is how the incident actually played out, that defective wheel bearing that we've been reporting on in the past. But the lawsuit and the attorney general really outlined what they see as a troubling pattern with the way Norfolk Southern has been operating trains like this in general, how long they are, staffing, maintenance schedules, inspections, all of that. And as evidence, the lawsuit points to the company's escalating accident rate. They say up 80% in a decade. Uh, Take a listen. Here's Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost during today's press conference. This derailment was entirely avoidable. And I'm concerned that Norfolk and Southern uh, may be putting profits for their own company above the health and safety of the the cities and communities that they operate in. So the state is now trying to make sure Norfolk Southern pays for this entire recovery. And there's a lot there. That includes economic losses for businesses and residents, uh, the cleanup, and those long-term effects like health concerns and water and soil pollution, plus, Jake, paying for this entire emergency response. And that's still going on today. Now, exactly how much that will be, we don't know. The attorney general wouldn't get into specifics, only to say... It is a lot of money. What does Norfolk Southern have to say in response? Yeah, so the rail company put out a statement late this afternoon. They actually didn't specifically mention the lawsuit, uh, but they outlined three new programs that the company is creating for the people of East Palestine. The first is a medical compensation fund uh, to address long-term health risks. Uh, The second is a protection program for home sellers if their property loses value because of the derailment. We know there's been major concern there. And third would be a program, Jake, to protect drinking water in the future. All right, Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate that update. The harmful chemicals that linger in the human body for a long time and could be in drinking water almost everywhere. What you need to know about the warning about the water, that's next. Drastic changes could be coming to the water that we drink in the U.S. The Environmental Protection Agency is proposing new drinking water standards for PFAs, which are known as forever chemicals. Scientists now believe these human-made chemicals are much more hazardous to our health than previously had been believed. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, walk us through this new proposal. Jake, they're called forever chemicals because they can really linger in your body. They don't just sort of, you know, dissipate. They don't go out of your body. They linger. Let's take a look at some of the products that they're found in. Everything from certain types of cookware to certain cleaning agents in your home, certain cosmetics. So they're really quite ubiquitous. They are in so many different things. Now let's take a look at the different problems that they're linked to. doesn't mean they cause these. They're just linked to cancers, to problems for that develop fetuses might face, liver effects, immune effects. And here is what the EPA is saying. We're going to put limits on this and water systems are going to be told you're going, you can't go above that limit. These could take effect uh, at the end of the year or they could be passed at the end of the by the end of the year. They wouldn't take effect for about three years. So this isn't going to happen for quite a while. And then it's unclear what the penalties are going to be. That seems like that would be sort of a big thing. You'd want to know what those penalties are going to be. And then the water systems can raise rates 
if they want to, if they feel that they need to. And then in addition, and this is important, these are only six chemicals that the EPA is regulating, and there are thousands of these forever chemicals. These six, there is particular, uh, particularly strong evidence of these links to human health problems. The EPA says they may look at other uh, forever chemicals in time if more evidence emerges. Jake? All right, uh, Elizabeth, uh, one last question though before you go. Are PFAs also in bottled water? Bottled water? You know what? The bottled water, right, bottled water is not actually regulated for these kinds of chemicals. So it can be there, and various studies have shown that in some brands of bottled water, they are there. Huh. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts all two hours, sitting there like a giant grapefruit. Our coverage continues next with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.